2: back to neil haley show on the total celebrity segment and uh the questions i have for this guest at the beginning she might laugh at because she probably won't get them again uh throughout the show but i'm excited to welcome to the program aisha tyler we're going to talk about unpologetic unapologetic on the show aisha thanks for calling but i'm going to talk about two of the shows i remember you most on by the way but how are you Okay.
3: I'm good. I'm really good. How
2: are you? Fantastic. First thing is that my kids remember you and they're huge fans. I have five kids, uh, Mother Nature. How is that experience again for the Santa Claus to be Mother Nature? I'm sure you're discovered all the time by little kids that come up to you that watch this movie over and over and over again and remember you.
3: Oh, absolutely. I mean, the fun, you know, what's the fun thing about those movies, and they are the kind of movie that many of so over and over again, is every year at Christmas time, you know, those those movies run, you know, at Nazium on cable. So um, you just get this whole new, you know, group of fans every year, which is super sweet. Uh, and it was a blast. It was a blast playing with nature in the Santa Claus movies. Uh, you know, and now they're like, strangely, these kind of lovely family classics. Um, playing the character was fun. The outfit was not fun. Um, <laughs> I could not, <laughs> I could not sit or go to the bathroom in that thing all day. So uh, I was just, I was just a mental ninja the entire time. But uh, it was a really, really great, great experience.
2: And you said during Christmas season, but also we play Christmas movies sometimes year round in families where they pull out that DVD and play it. So you're seen so many times for a, you know, not a guest starring type role, but you would never have thought when you uh, auditioned for this that this would just continue to play over and over again as that Christmas classic, I'm sure
3: yeah exactly. and, we, and you, when you do a movie, you don't know how it's gonna be received, received. you know what I mean? you don't know if you know it's really going to connect with people. So what's been really lovely is you know it's made that movie. And the first one has been a hit. I didn't come into Santa Claus too so at that point, yeah, it had a following with a fan base. but you know you have no you know have no idea how people are going to receive a film. And, and uh, it was a great, great experience and And people who know the movie really well will recognize uh, that most recently um there was a pretty famous uh, performance that fiance did on the Grammys, and everybody was saying that she was dressed up like Mother Nature in that performance. <laughs> so you still have on a side-by-side with my Mother Nature and Beyonce, which, you know, uh, is very flattering for me.
2: <laughs> and your first kind of experience in the talk show game, because we're going to talk about Unpologetic, is... Uh Talk Soup, and I remember you completely mm-hmm. from Talk Soup as well. That must have been an, an amazing experience to start out your career like in that in that kind of a genre and uh, learning the whole process because you're you're pretty much a jack of all trades: actress, talk show host, uh, voiceover, true. everything.
3: Yeah, and and you know, so Talk Soup, which I loved, and was so happy to have been able to be a part of. I was a fan of that show before I got that job. You know, I'd watched it when. You know, Greg Deere was on, and then when John Harrison was on. So I knew it just as a fan. And there's nothing cooler, you know, for, for a performer than to get on a show that, that you loved just as a television scene. Uh, and it was a great experience. I mean, you know, that was a cult hit for a long time on me. Um, it came back again with um with Joe McHale and and you know continued on and had this really great life but you know when I made it back in the day it was just this little green street show where we just made jokes about talk shows you know and uh, and it was it was a really great start I mean I I'll always be so grateful and and uh, and like really honored to have like had that as a part of my the start of my career for sure
2: Exactly. And your background and we're gonna get right into unpologetic is uh was it first like in media? Was that how you started or was it acting what was it to kind of get the talks? So no, you?
3: no, I started out as a stand up. Yeah, no, I, I started out as a stand up comedian. Um, so that was that was my background as a stand up and I've been a touring stand comic when I got to LA and uh, and I was doing a little bit of acting and saw that they needed somebody that they were auditioning people to host Talk Soup and, you know, ch- chase that job down, you know, just with passion and motivation. And it took a really long time. I auditioned and I waited almost six months before I heard that I got the job. Um, but, you know, the great thing about stand up comedy is that. You know, it makes you really nimble. You know, you're able to kind of deal with any situation and, and pivot in the moment and, and make stuff up on the fly. So that really helped me when I was, you know, doing the talk show because I was essentially just kind of stand up in a really ugly purple chair. Um, and then, you know, going on to do to Friends and and 24 and CSI and exactly. doing a kind of more straight acting, and then coming back to do now to do uh, the talk, which was live talk.
2: Exactly. So let's talk about Unpologetic and how that's different than some other talk shows and stuff like that on AMC. Tell us about that
3: hmm mm-hmm. So Unap- Unapologetic is a, is a late-night talk show, Unapologetic with Aisha Tyler. Uh, and it's, it's different in the way that it started, because it's, it's an after-show for um, a brand-new show called The Rams, which is also uh, a good the of The Talks on the Night. Um, and if people know the show The Walking Dead, then they know the show The Talking Dead, which comes on after The Walking Dead, and is kind of like a post-show The Walking Dead. There are shows similar, but not the same, because... It kind of it plucks issues or plot points that have happened on on Land out from the show, and then really expands it out into the real world, into what's happening right now, into what's happening in popular culture, into, into what's happening um, in politics, in entertainment, in media, and specifically through the lens of the post kind of our post MeToo culture. It's really talking about issues that affect women and men everywhere, every day. So, and it's fun. It's not a, it's, it's, we talk about serious stuff, but in a really playful way. It's so that even if you don't watch Diet Land, you can enjoy our show because it's comedy driven and it's a good time. And, uh, and we just want people to be thinking about the issues of the day, but in a really fun and playful or an upbeat way. And it, it, the premiere of the show was just. Uh, it was amazing. So we're, we're having a really
2: good time. And you know, it's interesting when you talk about the issues of the day, they come up fast and hard, especially this week, Aisha, just to kind of think about just the news now. Oh, wow. Of Anthony bournain I'm like, oh, my gosh. Absolutely. When I saw that on Facebook, I'm like, wow. Two two big suicides of two it's, it's, uh, amazing uh, talents. It's just really sad. It's a sad weekend for Extraordinary
3: suicide. talent. Yeah. Yeah, Anthony Bourdain. And Anthony and I were friendly. Um he did my podcast, Girl on Guy, many, many years ago. In fact, he did the first season of, of my podcast. Um, and then I ended up um I really admired him. You know, he was a, a brilliant mind and, and did really extraordinary work. And I ended up um hosting a show that he had created uh, called The Getaway, uh that um that aired on um Esquire, the Esquire Network. And um i saw him as a mentor and as someone who uh you know i wanted to be like when i grew up um and i think the really tragic thing about suicide is it affects um this the, it could affect anyone yes. you know the smartest most intelligent most accomplished people can can be struggling with depression um you know anthony was in a new relationship he was in love so <sighs> it's so shocking to see that but the, the other terrible thing about suicide is that um they tend to come in clusters because someone sees someone. that might have been thinking about it, and then they see someone else has done it. And a lot of times, um, it can trigger a suicide in another person. So, for anybody listening right now, if you are thinking about suicide, um, if you are having suicidal ideations, or if you know anybody that is, please get help. Because um, yes. suicide is a, is a permanent solution to a temporary problem.
2: And then, and it's a, um, that's great, a great message, Aisha, and I agree with you as well. I had my co-host on yesterday, we we're kind of talking about this, and she said, and she's going to become a doctor, and she said fat, flat out, the bottom line is we treat broken bones, but we don't know how to treat mental illness, and we need to learn that it's just like a broken bone. Mm-hmm. We got we to go, we gotta go and get help, like if we broke a bone. If if illness, you, you, yeah. yeah, for sure. And, and
3: people feel like it's a permanent state. It's not a permanent state and it can be it can be helped. And, and we have to we have to normalize mental health in, in this country. It, people are ashamed to talk about it and other people who, who, who you know don't know how to talk about it, so they're embarrassed. They don't it's an illness like any illness is normalized that people need to be able to talk about the fact that they're in therapy or that they need therapy and it's doing that they're feeling bad and it should be a normal conversation like I have a cold or I have the flu or I have diabetes. I have depression, so I'm bipolar, and the more we talk about it, the more we get it out in the open, the more lives we're going
2: to save. Absolutely, and lives of other people as well that have to deal with it if there's like horrific shootings or things like that. So I appreciate you calling, and I, uh, best place we can find information on you, connect with you and stuff. Where can we go, Aisha, to check you out? Where's best place?
3: Oh, I'm at I Tyler on every on all social platforms at Aisha Tyler on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram and AishaTyler.com uh, come say
2: hi you're fabulous, great talking to you, best of luck with this new show and then all the other ventures you're doing, so thanks again for calling thank you Take thank care. you so much, you're welcome. With you you too, bye bye, you're listening to Neil Haley's show and we'll be back in just a moment we're back the Neil Haley show on the total celebrity segment I'm excited to welcome the program Akbar Baja Bia Miller and Christine Leahy guys thanks for calling from American ninja Warrior I know you guys are excited today to talk about what's coming up soon how are you
4: Neil We are doing so good. We're we're so glad to be on the show this morning.
2: Absolutely, Akbar. I've talked to you before, and again, both of us as professional athletes and having lots of children. Do you still want to hit that course after you've seen some of the amazing feats and stories that have been happening lately on the show?
4: Yeah, you yeah. yeah, yeah, I I did hit the course for the first time. You know, I've been talking about it for so long, but for the first time I had an opportunity to do it uh, on Red Nose Day. We had the Celebrity Ninja Warrior, and uh, I just wanted to kind of put my, my money where my mouth was, and uh, and I did it. I mean, let me tell you something. I was extremely, extremely nervous uh, taking on the team. It's totally different than doing the NFL thing. Um, this is totally out of my element, but uh, I got prepared for it. Uh, trained with Kevin Bull, one of the ninjas. He got me ready for it, but let me tell you, it wasn't easy for the big fella at 6'6". Six, 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 I might have been the heaviest guy ever to, to get on the court. I think
2: you were. Yeah, right. So, yeah. Oh, wow. And see, and heavy, I know that's hard, Akbar, and I'll, I'll jump back uh, over really quickly, Christine. Thinking about specifically enough, when you, uh, the strength of just lifting yourself up when you weigh so much, it's hard to like, do pull ups or anything when you weigh more weight, right? It's push-ups, everything when you okay. have that much weight.
4: You Neil, know, let me tell you something. It was one of the most humbling things I had to go through while training, whereas I'm used to being able to bench press, you know, 400 pounds and squat a whole bunch of weight, but to move my own weight is where I struggled. I mean, you know, I went started off my ninja training. I was only able to do about three pull-ups. At the end of all of my training, I got up to 12, which is a That's big deal. Fantastic. I never got the double And that's just, I mean, just to give you an idea of how difficult it is to be able to be strong in the weight room but not be able to move your own body weight. And to be successful as a ninja, you have to be able to move your body weight. And it challenges you mentally and physically. But that's why these ninjas that we're seeing, you know, Christine and I, we get a chance to see how strong they are both physically and mentally.
2: Now, Christine, have you hit the obstacle course? Have you done it yourself?
5: (laughs) No, I'm the only one of the three of us now who hasn't done the course. Matt's done parts of it, but I've noticed that he winds up in the ER every time. <laughs> um, and then I saw <laughs> or do it, which was, see, because he he did not. You were successful. You you made it up the warped call. So I think that it's kind of my time now. I yep, have to is. do it. There's no more excuses. And I've been working out a lot. Uh, I just don't want to do it in season because I'm really afraid I'll break my face,
4: <laughs> <You wouldn't laughs> break your face.
5: which isn't good for when we shooting a show. You well, know? Me, I,
4: just so you know, I have a bunch of my old football helmets at home. You
5: want me to do it in a football helmet? Yeah, you can do it. If you're That's worried about the face, no, you'll be fine. No, I need have a peripheral I need a vision. I don't want to add any weight to my body. I need to be agile and lean.
4: I'll give you the punter
5: helmet. Yeah, and okay. that
4: way you can see more. But, you know, to be honest, I've, I've actually worked out with Christine a couple of times. And let me tell you, she gets after it. I mean, you I know, know, don't be fooled. I mean, she's she's going to get after it. But um, I think she is a little nervous. She's just not. be <laughs> a little scared to get on the course. <laughs> I don't want to go to the hospital.
2: You're <laughs> not going to go to the hospital. <laughs> So that's great to have all three of you at least wanting to be semi-athletic when you see these great uh, contestants, right, Akbar? It's like that's part of the whole thing, working out, living that Ninja Warrior uh, health mentality, right, Akbar? Well,
4: it is, and I think what it is, it's a testament to how the Ninjas really inspire us. I mean, you know, here I am, a, a former athlete, retired You know, Christine, she's had her athletic, uh, you know, uh, career. And you look at Matt, he had his athletic career. But then I think when you see this, and we're far removed from it, you get inspired by the stories. And it's the same thing with the folks at home. They get inspired by the stories of these ninjas uh, that overcome so much. Here you are getting ordinary people doing extraordinary things on this obstacle course. And and that's why we're excited. Our move to Monday, we're on tomorrow uh, in Miami. But we move back to Mondays in Indianapolis and uh, we get a chance to see uh, our very first American Ninja Warrior winner, Isaac Caldero. He's back after three years. That's going to be exciting TV to watch.
2: So Monday night, but Christine, also the podcast. Tell us about the podcast, then we'll go right back to Monday night for sure what people need to tune into. You
5: know what? I'm not involved in the podcast, so I'm going to have Akbar answer that one for you. Yeah,
4: well, you'll Yeah, the podcast is a it's a deep dive. We we actually go into uh, a lot of these ninjas' personal lives. We talk about you know who they are, where they grew up, and what makes them you know you know such a phenomenal story. And uh, we get a little bit of that during the show, where you get to see a little bit of their story in about sixty to thirty seconds. But we actually want to go further. So we talk to these ninjas for about an hour and. I tell you, the stuff that's come out in these podcasts has been nothing but amazing. So you can check out American Ninja Warrior podcast. Uh, we're on right after the we come on the, the day after the show airs, so you'll be able to get that uh, the Tuesday after the Monday showings uh, of uh, American Ninja Warrior. That
2: that's a great idea, Christine, to tell these stories. Right? Aren't these stories amazing? Since you've been covering it. This of the people and what, what background they've come from and how they overcame everything and all odds at times to be successful and be on this show.
5: Yeah, I think that's why the show is so successful and why people keep coming back to watch because uh, we, we have a fair share of returning ninjas and then we also have new people and their stories. We, we're, we have like 100,000 people now trying to be on the show and yeah. you would think that we would run out of great things to tell, but we don't. Um, and it's really inspiring, and I think people at home watch and they get really attached to certain people based on the story that we show before their run, and so they're rooting for them. Um, and then you want to see them come back year after year. And we've we've had people, you know, who are sick who are now healthy, and uh, vice versa. And it's just it's great to follow these people. Yeah, and
4: on the flip side, too, Neil, is that the fact that this year we've done something a little different, you know, for our 10th season now, and just to think about the show has been on now yeah, for wow. 10th season, and you know, especially era of TV, that, that's that's quite challenging to be on for 10 seasons. But we've done something different in that we re, we lowered the age requirement now. So 19 years old, you now can compete on American Ninja Warrior. And so we have, in those 100,000s of submission videos, we have younger stories, guys who are just a year or two removed from taking the STP and the ACT test, wow. you know, trying yeah. to get into comp. Um, and now they're competing on Ninja Warrior. So you're getting professional uh, young professionals getting into the ninja season. It would be cool, though. Yes.
5: And they can win $10,000. They, they can, can make it up the Warp right.
4: law. $10,000. dollars
5: you can win 10 grand. I mean,
4: that's a lot of money. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's at least a semester's worth of, uh, <laughs> maybe a little less. <laughs> a little bit less now with the tuition prices now, but $10,000 can help you out with some books and food and stuff like that on campus.
2: And, Christine, I guess that you have saw the whole, the. Uh, rise of American Ninja Warrior to, you know, where it was kind of like, oh, okay, some people are doing it to now there are training facilities all over the country. You just got to be blown away with the growth and what this has become.
5: We're available in Target now. You can buy Ninja Warrior products at Target. So, yeah, it has grown quite a bit. And so many people have backyard courses. I think at least three times a day, I have a family send me one of their kids doing course in the backyard. There are ninja gyms everywhere. Um, and the show just keeps growing, and yeah, it's and really we, become and a and
4: lifestyle. Yeah, it's become a lifestyle, and you know that because a lot of the stuff has gone viral. You know, you talk about uh, Christine talks about people just sending videos, and you look at a lot of the viral moments on social media, and you will see kids doing backyard ninja,
0: oh, and that's amazing yeah. to
4: see how much the show has impacted families in their in their personal time, where the kids can create their own fun. With American Ninja Warrior, and you know we've even spun off now to get you know an American Ninja Warrior Junior for kids, and that's going to be special. But I think what's more special now, though, is just the stories that we have coming up this year for this season. Um, you know, Christina already talked about the Mega Warp Wall. We took something as iconic as the Warp Wall, which used to be one of the harder obstacles uh, to get over, but now ninjas have practiced over and over, so we supersized the, the the Warp Wall and made it 18 feet. And
2: if you get up that 18-feet walk wall, you get
4: 10 Gs. Oh, wow. Straight up 10 Gs on
2: the spot. That's fantastic. Again, everyone needs to tune in June 18th, Monday night, 8 p.m., 10 p.m. Eastern. And also, we can check you guys out social media-wise really quickly. Where can we go for Akbar and Christine? Yeah,
4: absolutely. You can find us on social media at Ninja Warrior. And that's on on Twitter. That's on Instagram. And uh, American
5: Ninja Warrior on Facebook. I think so. And you are... At Akbar be on the left. No, 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 no. At
4: Akbar underscore oh, G B A J A. I can't give him the whole last. Won't <laughs> ever find me on social media. That's the point. And uh, mine is really easy. At
5: Christine Leahy on everything. Christine with
2: a K. Thanks for calling, guys. And great catching up again, Akbar, and great talking to you, Christine, as well. And best of luck, guys. Hey. All right.
6: Thank
2: you. All right. Take care. Thanks again. Bye bye. You're listening to Neil Haley's show, and we'll be back thanks in just a moment. Thanks
6: back to the neil haley show on the total celebrity segment authors corner and you know when i think about my guests today there's questions especially when we're talking about guns right now and what's going on so i'm excited to welcome to the program congressman steve israel he's the author of That's very interesting big guns big guns is the title a uh, congressman israel thanks for calling and you know what I think about it, and your top, you're the, saying big guns. You might get a lot of people to buy the book before they read it, just hearing the word big guns, Congressman Israel, am I right?
7: <laughs> well, you know, the, the, the title of a book is, uh, is the most important words in the book. It, it leads people to, uh, to open it and skim it and maybe purchase it, and I hope, I hope they will. This is a political satire on the, about the U.S. Congress uh, and how it handles the issue of, of uh, gun safety.
6: I mean, here's the big thing I'm going to talk about. As a former teacher, my wife's a former teacher. I own a tutoring and consulting company. With all of these mass shootings happening in schools now, tell me why we shouldn't— uh, why should these still considered be gun-free schools? Why is it that that because we're having so much of this happening— We should tighten gun laws and not restrict them, or not uh, loosen them. What is the reason?
7: Well, there are several reasons. Uh, First of all, look, I'm not absolutist on this. I mean, it it may make sense in in some schools and some areas to... Uh, have people who are trained, um, who are trained to use a firearm, uh, who have uh, backgrounds in, uh, in safety, uh, t- to allow them to do that. But, but right now we're in a political environment where some are saying that's the only thing we should do. And, and that's just not going to solve the problem uh, of rampant gun violence and mass shootings in schools. It's not just one thing we should do, we should do different things. Uh, there, there are areas of compromise in Congress. For example, uh, if we just try strengthen background checks. That doesn't necessarily have to exclude uh, providing or or, or allowing uh, trained people uh, in in our schools, but it ought to be part of of the issue. No fly, no buy, saying if you're uh, suspected of being a terrorist uh, and you can't get on a plane, we should make it harder for you to be able to get a military-style assault weapon. Those are things that 90% of the American people support. uh, And we ought ought to do those things, in addition to some of the other things that, that you may agree with.
6: Yeah, so I, I wouldn't put myself on either position. It's very interesting, okay. Congressman Israel, how I've kind of gone to the center when I was far, far right a couple years ago when it comes, because education kind of brings me into that center. And now with not condoning everything that President Trump's, I mean, what he says and what he does are two different mm-hmm. things in certain ways. I just am embarrassed by his tweets, his different things as a registered Republican. That I'm more and more becoming in the center on everything. So I kind of like, I guess as a journalist, take both sides. But when I look at it, I, yeah. if I was looking at the school issue, I'd have armed security mm-hmm. or police officers in every building, and I'd have a great mm-hmm. strategic plan for every building for it an attack, not mm-hmm. having teachers have guns, which is the most ridiculous thing in the world, to have right. teachers carrying well,
7: guns. Yeah. And, and, and I don't think I really disagree with you. I think the part, you know, part of the, the problem we have, and, and I try to, to get to this in the book, is that we're so polarized and, and we're so fixed on screaming at one another without letting each other finish the sentence uh, that our debates become ridiculous. And so the, the notion of, of putting armed and trained uh, certified peace officers in schools has been reduced to well, are you going to, you know, uh, every teacher should be uh, required to, to uh, carry a firearm, or on the other side, no, nobody should be allowed to bring a firearm into a, into a school. There's, there's compromise in the center, uh, and that's what my book tries to get at through, through you know, in, in the way that I uh, know best, and that is snark and satire and written from the very inside of the United States Congress.
6: And were you that kind of snark and satire when you were a congressman? And did you kind of do
7: that in two ones or... Yeah. Neil, I grew up uh, in uh, in Levittown, New York with uh, three dreams. One was to be a, uh, a satirical uh, author, write satirical novels. Uh, the other was to be a, a member of Congress. and. The third was to play outfield for the New York Mets. Um, but the third didn't come to pass, although it might be feasible these days with how my team is doing. Um, but I kind of, I grew up loving to write and loving to write comedy. Uh, Congress provides a whole bunch of infra, of, of material <laughs> to, to write about in a, in a snarky, satiric way. Uh, and uh, I put it all together uh, in this novel. It's my second novel. My first was called The Global War on Morris, uh, and it was about how Washington... Uh, began to act uh, excessively in invading people 's privacy after nine eleven
6: very interesting so after your career passion of yours, and I love hearing that because that 's what 's so great is people are still reading books so much it 's so much fun to write and have that book finished it 's a some it 's a passion of yours isn 't it writing
7: yeah. You know, it, uh, absolutely a passion, uh, but also for me, uh, a release when I was in Congress. I was elected in 2000. Nine months later, 9-11, and suddenly I found myself, yeah. uh, you know, in these extraordinary circumstances, uh, just to so much pressure, uh, and I began writing almost as a release. I kept a journal. I spent a lot of time on, on airplanes, uh, long car rides uh, going th- across my district, and i just began uh really focusing on my writing that uh, ended up being my first book. I, I you know, l- literally stumbled onto uh, an agent, uh, bumped into an agent in New York City who read my manuscript, uh, sold it to Simon and & Schuster, and The Global Warren Morris was published in 2015. Then I wanted to do some satire on uh, the gun lobby uh, and how Congress responds to it, yeah. and that's what uh, inspired Big Guns.
6: Now- How how do you get along with the other side when you were there? Were you able to get along with most, or some of them were just a little too extreme for you to get in those conversations? Is it really that heated between the Republicans and Democrats in Congress?
7: It's a wonderful question, and what so many people see on TV, uh, the, the screaming, the partisanship, the polarization, does not reflect the reality of the United States Congress, believe it or not. And so my favorite conversations were in quiet places with people uh, with whom I fundamentally disagreed, and we would talk about what normal people talk about, pressures back home, um, you know, problems on the job, and that... Those friendships are what I miss most in Congress. I left after 16 years unindicted and undefeated, and people often say, well, what do you miss? And what I miss is what people also miss uh, because they're not aware of it, and that is the human relationships with people on both sides of the aisle and those friendships that you just never see.
6: That's so interesting when you talk about the relationships. And I think that I have people that I don't agree with on certain topics. And I still have that conversation, that cordial. So I think the whole U.S. needs to take that side of what Congress says. Yes, we debate. Yes, we get heated. But at the end of the day, we're all people. We all have families. We all have challenges in our lives. And we have to get together and stay together instead of be so divided. That must concern you greatly. The book, probably Big Gun, has some of that political satire. And that concerns you as well. Say, come on now, let's just get along.
7: You know, and, and, that, and that's the point, one of the points I try and make in the book. In, in fact, uh, one of my writing uh, mentors is uh, Nelson DeMille, who's a very prolific author of spy thrillers. I mean, you, can, you can't go past an airport bookstore without seeing his books. And he's also very conservative uh, and supports uh, gun ownership, responsible gun ownership. And I had asked him to do a blurb on my book, and I was concerned because he and I have fundamental disagreements on the issue. Uh, and, and he ended up doing a blurb, this conservative uh, and prolific author that says, you know, nice things about me, and then says, you don't need to completely agree with Steve. I don't, but you need to hear what he has to say. Uh, Members of Congress should pass a law making big guns, mandatory reading. I I wish we had more relationships like that, where somebody from the right and somebody left of center could just find things to agree on instead of focusing on disagreements.
6: All right, best place we can pick up your book, uh, Congressman
7: Israel, where can we go? Oh, any any bookstore, any bookseller online. Uh, it's a, widely available.
6: Awesome, and uh, do you have social media and stuff? Especially now, you have to yep. in this day yeah, and Yeah, Well, thank you it's for it's that. My book.
7: agent would be embarrassed okay. that I didn't mention www.repsteveisrael.com.
6: All right, well, appreciate it. Best of luck, and I definitely want to check out the book. Thanks, sir. And uh, you're, you're very interesting. Take care. Bye, bye. You're listening thank to the Neil Haley Show. We'll You're welcome, and we'll be back in just a moment.
2: We're back to the Total Celebrity Show segment on the Neil Haley Show, and I'm excited to welcome the program, Ashlyn and Philippe Cousteau, guys. Thanks for calling, and World Ocean Day today, right? So it's a big day, isn't it, Philippe? That's
8: right. Thanks for having us. Yes, absolutely. Yes. Our favorite day, one of our favorite days of the year, actually, very appropriate, uh, yeah. World Oceans Day, celebrating something that, you know, a the, the little thing called the ocean that, you know, we kind of rely on for food and oxygen and, and a few other important things. Okay. So it, it deserves its
2: own day, I think. Agreed. Okay. So, Ashlyn, can I, um, tell us a little bit about, like, the history of this, of this uh, day and how it started and stuff and why. Well,
9: I think that everybody knows Earth Day. And Earth, Earth has have had some really good PR, <laughs> but our oceans is something that, that like we said, that we kind of will not take for granted. It's so big, it's so vast, and when you look out there, you know sometimes you don't really see anything. So this day was just so important to, uh, to really just talk about what the ocean does for all of us. You know, it, it really wasn't started being observed until uh, 2008. Um, But one thing that's really important to Philippe and I is we're actually doing a march around D.C. um, to get the word out for our oceans and and remind people how important our ocean is and how people think that sometimes the ocean divides us across continents, but really what the ocean does is it it connects all of us together. That's right. right. We really need to make sure that we take care of it and and we uh, keep it clean, as clean as we can, and we don't overfish it, and we... (laughs) Pretty much, we don't screw it up. Yeah, um, we take care of the Yes, anyway, so, well. yes. Yeah.
2: Yeah. And that's that's such an important part, Philippe. And you learned that a lot from your grandfather as well, right? About ocean.
8: You know, growing up with my grandfather John okay. Cousteau, it was uh, it was a huge influence on my life. Uh, and it, you know, interestingly enough, this year is also the seventy fifth anniversary of his invention of scuba diving. Yeah. And uh, it's something that you know, is hard, I think, for a lot of people to, to remember that you know a lifetime ago. We barely knew anything about the ocean. And it really wasn't until his work um, and his films and documentaries that began to open it up to, to people's understanding. Uh, and in that time, we've started to realize that all the things that we do, you know, from, as Ashton said, from, you know, fishing and, and, and the pollution that we create, et cetera, is having a real impact. Even though it's 70% of our planet seems vast and untouchable and unchangeable. Um, it's really suffering. And, uh, and, you know, the ocean is uh, is a huge part of our our survival as a species on this planet, and all species. It regulates our climate. It provides most of our oxygen, which is kind of nice. Um, provides food for, you know, billions of people every year. Uh, incredible amounts of commerce. And it does it for free, as long as we just don't screw it up. And, unfortunately, we have been. And, and today is all about recognizing that and reminding people how important the oceans are. As Ashlyn said, you know, it's been an official... United Nations-recognized day since uh, 2008.
2: And um, wow. uh, it's something that, that,
8: that, that the world, not just the bad news, but the optimism and the hope, too.
2: Now, Ashlyn, it's time to search for buried treasure again. I remember talking to you at the season premiere of last <laughs> season and the first time then we talked about it, And I kind of looked at you guys and said to myself, really, uh, we're going to search for buried treasure? But a second season's coming up, and I, I didn't think there was Pirates treasure out there. And uh, are you excited about it?
9: Oh, my goodness. We, we are so excited. And, and this second season took first season, and we really ramped it up, um, which I didn't think was possible. <laughs> um, and when you think about it, even, like, one place that we looked was uh, we went down to Key West. And, you know, Philippe and I were standing there at one point during filming, and we looked out, and we just said, wow, there is billions and billions of dollars worth of treasure, you know, ju- right right around us. Um, Right on these waters. And I mean, it's amazing to think there's there's the treasure ship, the San Jose, that they just found off the coast of Colombia that has what they think could be $72 billion worth of treasure on it. And that boggles the mind. It
8: it Um, does. It does. And, And that's the part of this, that's what we love about the show. The show is all about kind of exploring the history and mystery of all the pirate stories and lore that we grew up with, right? I mean, it captures everybody's imagination. And so we wanted to be able to go out. And uh, and try and get to the bottom of a lot of these stories and, and tell people the truth behind them. And um, and so we have some pretty wild adventures all over the Caribbean, uh, Latin America, South America. We're you know we're kind of all through there, Peru and Ecuador. You know all, all over. So we're having a we have a great time with the show and and um, and, and terrific adventures. And we bring it to everybody as it happens. We, um, you know, and, and yeah, we're thrilled to have a second season, uh, but it's even more exciting than the
2: first. Yeah. Now, Philippe, th- how, last season, did you guys find any treasure, especially, you know, we think about, oh, come on now, searching for buried <laughs> treasure. Was there any uh, un- uncovering or more history from last season?
8: Well, you know, it's a lot harder than than, than people recognize um, because, you know, wood gets, eaten away in the water. So there are no, like, wooden ships and no, like, wooden chests full of gold and silver. unfortunately. You know, and after two, three hundred years, all this stuff gets moved around. But we did find some coins last year. We found copper ingots. We found um, Cannon. cannons. Anchor. We found yeah, anchor. We found a lot of stuff that uh, that is really valuable, both financially and, you know, from a historical perspective. But I think the things that we love the most, honestly, is, is uh, um, the, the everyday pieces. So, you know, the spoons, the plates, the cups, the things like that 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 had been sitting there at the bottom of the ocean for 300 years and the last person to touch it was likely a sailor or a pirate uh, right before a battle that ended unbeknownst to them, you know caused them to uh, to pass away um, in some sort of a tragedy. and and it's that 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 brings us mm-hmm. kind of a bridge to the past is what we love about the show and and um, and, and the adventures and the danger. I tell you Ashland went to the emergency room this season. I uh, did some. We did some of the most dangerous diving we've ever done. So we, where we modern-day pirates. So it's, it's definitely um, a show that, uh, that, that, that is full of adrenaline and excitement and, and keeps it moving along.
2: Now uh, let's kind of go to uh, Ashland about. There is buried treasure, even if it's not treasure that you guys discover. Then, right? As you said, there's stuff that in, underneath the ocean that you just wouldn't expect, right? That you found in, in these One hundred
0: percent. One hundred percent.
9: I mean, for, for me, we had, at one point, we we're looking around and, and you know, fanning the, fanning the sea, and this little, I saw this little object, and I couldn't figure out what it was, and I picked it up, and when I looked at it, I realized that it was, it was a pipe, like a tobacco pipe, um, and it was in, it carved with these intricate little roses. Quiet,
3: right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah,
9: carved with these intricate little roses, and I just, it brought tears to my eyes, thinking that you know, I was, A, touching a piece of history, but the last person that touched this would have perished in, in an awful way, because if it wasn't from a battle, it would have been an, a horrible ship or even a tsunami. Yeah, this, uh, yeah, Yeah, a horrible shipwreck uh, or a tsunami or a storm that took down, took down these boats. And it took a lot of gall from these people, mostly men back then, but to sail across the open ocean in wooden ships, no GPS, no motors, I mean, no nothing, just the sails, the wind at their back, and help. And, and to think that their dreams and their lives were dashed so quickly. And just to be able to touch those pieces, like Philippe was saying, those personal pieces, it, it really is a way to kind of touch back into the past. and and it's incredible it's an incredible feeling to
2: hold something like that in your hand Philippe the history is just amazing right and I just again uh, people definitely need to check it out so best place we can find information on both of you guys about World Oceans Day your show and other projects you're doing where's the best place we can go
8: Um, we're posting a lot, actually, uh, on, on our social, so at P. Cousteau, at Ashland Cousteau. We're in Washington, D.C. We'll be there tomorrow for a, a March for the Ocean on the National Mall. So anybody that's in the area that wants to sell a better ocean, come out for bands and speeches and some, a lot of fun um, and food and all sorts of great things that are happening tomorrow on the Mall. Um, we, uh, we encourage everybody to join us, and we're posting constantly information about all of that stuff and photos from our adventures and things like that on Instagram. It's probably the best place, P. Cousteau and, and Ashlyn Cousteau.
3: Right. Facebook, Twitter,
2: got it all. Awesome, and, and, and two, two premieres Wednesday, uh, June 13th at 10 p.m. Eastern and 10.30 p.m. Eastern. Thanks for calling, guys. Always great to chat, and look forward to chatting with you guys again. So good talking to you.
6: Always a pleasure. Thanks.
2: All right, take care. Thanks, guys. All right, see you later. Bye. You're listening to Neil Haley's Show when we be back in just a moment.
6: <laughs> we're back to Neil Haley show on the Total Celebrity segment, and I love chatting with This woman, I'm excited to welcome program comedian Michelle Collins. She's going to talk about search history on People TV. Michelle, thanks for calling. How are you?
1: Neil, I am great, and thank you for having me. How are you?
6: I am doing fantastic. It's summertime. It's it's time to kind of... uh, enjoy the nice weather in pittsburgh if we ever have sunny days but when we do it's it's a nice thing so you know the whole thing i'm I'm happy for your
1: people i really am (laughs) And,
6: and with your syndicated radio show on uh on Sirius, you're always kind of dealing with being stuck in a studio at times you'd like to be out walking around right in the nice weather
1: I really do, and thank you, by the way, for plugging my serious show. That's so nice of you because I'm not even here to plug that, so that's so kind. Um, no, I love roaming. I'm done with my show at 10 a.m., and then I'm like puttering around the city like Brooks and Shawshank with nothing to do for the rest of the day, so sunny days really do um, help me
6: out. Well, i love the plug and anything, will, Michelle. Yeah, yeah, sorry. Sorry, go ahead.
1: No, you go first. <laughs> Please, you.
6: So, yeah, okay, let's talk about search history. I laughed when I read this. I said, oh my goodness. I just, I cracked up laughing because I said, this is something that I don't, I, a lot of people don't ever want people to look at on their phones, computers, whatever, involving search history. So tell me about the premise of the show.
1: So, Search History is a brand new show. It's out today on peopletv.com and the People app, which you can download everywhere. Um, and it basically features me roaming the streets of Los Angeles and approaching strangers, like true strangers, people just hanging out, um, and asking to go through their phones. We would plug their phones into a laptop so that we could see everything, you know, I was looking at. And honestly, there were no limits. I, for the most part, was able to see everything on their phone from pictures, selfies, DMs, uh, obviously search history. We wanted to know what people were Googling, what they were buying on Amazon, messaging. There was, you know, we don't realize that the phones are extensions of our personalities. So we really kind of learned a lot about what makes people tick on the show.
6: And the problem is our phones are such a – situation where no one, we won't want anyone in our phones, because we have our private situations to, you know, business feelings. I don't think you would like, Michelle, someone to grab your phone and say, I'm going to take your search history, right? That would be... Oh, I
1: would uh, never do this show. No, I actually, um, it's (laughs) funny, because our crew was like, why don't we plug your phone in? And the funny thing is, is I have nothing salacious on my phone. I save that for my laptop. Do you know what I mean? But I still was (laughs) like, no, I I don't want you looking through, I mean, I certainly talked I, I talk badly about people in my texts. So I'm like, I don't want people seeing what I'm saying. You know what I mean? Because it's it's a tough situation. So, but that was what's amazing is that people were like very almost eager to be a part of it. Um, and I think that for the most part, you know, what I should tell people is that my style is not uh, malicious. Like I'm not. I wasn't trying to catch anyone cheating or anything like that. It was more kind of a, obviously comedy can come from anything, but you know, for the most part, we were finding kind of the normal things that we all do on our phones, and just how weird every individual person is.
7: Yeah,
6: absolutely. Again, we're talking to Shell Collins, we're talking about search history on People TV, and the thing I would say is that I write notes all the time, dreams, different quotes, different things, so anything that's on your phone searchable, I take all my notes on my phone, so it would be something I'd say, oh, please don't. Because it's my personal feeling, ideas, dreams, aspirations I have as an entrepreneur. I wouldn't want people to see that.
1: Yeah, Yeah, we definitely stole some um, manufacturing ideas. I've already taken them to Barbara Corcoran. Uh, That was a big part of the show was just me stealing other people's ideas. (laughs) So we got that done. No, but, you know, we just, I mean, I will say that, you know, I guess what also surprised me about making the show was some of the most innocent looking people, just kind, sweet people, had the worst stuff on their phone. You know, you, you just, it shows you that never judge a book by its cover. And I remember there was also a really funny moment where we talked to a dad and his daughter, uh, and we were going through the daughter's phone. She was probably, like, 16 years old, and we talked, because the dad was like, yeah, I'm, I'm all over her Instagram. Like, I see everything she posts. She has nothing. I'm not worried about this. Like, go for it. And I said to him, oh, well, do you know about her fake Instagram? Because all teenagers these days have something called a Finstagram, which is their sort of – it's like the hidden one away from their parents. Or no, that's Rinstagram. Yep. It's, excuse me, Finstagram is what they use to stalk people with. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm old. I apologize. Rinstagram is the one where it's like the stuff where they post all the, the you know, dirty stuff, drug pictures, whatever. And so yeah. we kind of called this scroll out in front of her dad, and he was pissed. And it was a real reaction that we got on camera, you know, so I would, all that I would and more.
6: That. Yeah, I would love that. It was it was so, really so, fun. It's all yeah. simple. And it's so simple, peopleTV.com, right? We can watch right now, correct? com. watch right? it right
1: now, and also download the app. It's totally free. The show is free. Um, it It'll cost you nothing, and it'll only take a little over an hour to watch all the episodes. So it's not like Game of Thrones or Westworld. Like, you'll get it from the beginning, you know?
6: Well, I'm definitely, I think this is, again, the wave of the future is streaming everything, and everyone's getting on board on this because it's really the cool thing about it is then you could just do it whenever you want to watch it. I, I have lots of employees that are millennials, and literally all of them that work for me, they don't watch television anymore. They just stream things. So it's That's really, right. I, I, I just can imagine what's what's going to happen, Michelle, in 10 years. I don't know. I mean, it's I, be I totally really agree. Although I
1: will tell you, I I love an app, but I still love my cable. I'm not going to sit here and pretend like I'm only on an app, straight up.
6: Exactly, for sure. And then tell us about your show again that people can tune in every day on Sirius. Yeah. Oh,
1: that's so nice. So, yeah, every morning I'm live from 8 to 10 on Sirius XM Stars 109. Uh, we have incredible guests. I'm actually shocked at the caliber of people they bring in uh, for me to interview. And um, it's just really fun. It's it's a loose, open show for two hours. Neil, and next time you're in the city, I would love to have you on. Let me know.
6: Oh, really? Oh, that's an honor. Thank yeah. you. I can talk about my I mean, control. I'm very I'm fair. 10. And all, and all those things, I, absolutely. I will definitely look into that. So you're in New York then, Michelle, your show? I am in LA. New York.
1: Yeah, so, Neil, come. New York. I'm sure you come to New York all the time. So come over and uh, spend yes. some time with me. It'll be fun.
6: I would love that. I, you, trust me, it's going to happen, Michelle. I will have to reach out to you I'm, team, I'm I not joking. It.
1: I'm sitting here. Look, put a lie detector on me. Come on the show. Done. It's happening.
6: All right, I'm six foot ten, former pro wrestler. You'll have a blast with me. All right, well, good talk. Oh, you, uh, I cannot wait. Luck and, Thank you, Neil. And, and be, and you're welcome. Take care. See you later. All right, thanks. Bye bye. Okay. Thanks, Neil. Bye bye. You're, you're welcome. You're listening to the Neil Haley Show, and we'll be back in just a moment.
2: We're back to the Neil Haley Show on the Total Celebrity segment and Author's Corner segment. And I talk about when you talk about a man that. Uh, Really ch- transformed uh, a society with uh, digital media. So I'm excited to welcome to the program author Roy Seacoff. He's the author of, and this is a Lack Self Control, his memoir. He is the editor of the Huffington Post and president and co creator of Huffington Post Live and winner of three straight webbies for Best News and Information Channel. Again, Roy, I could talk about your, your titles forever. How are you, Roy?
10: Hey, nice to talk to you, Neil.
2: All right, so let's kind of just jump right into the specifics about you know how how the how this whole uh, book came about. You're so busy, how could you even write a book, Roy? Really? Come on, now. All the different things well, I just actually, brought in the title and everything.
10: Actually what happened was, you know, after 11 years of building the Huffington Post and HuffPost Live uh, from four people to 800 people, uh, you know, across 17 different countries, I decided to pull the ripcord and take a break from the 24-7 news cycle. Um, I'd been commuting back and forth between L.A. and New York on a weekly basis for four years, and I'd seen enough of airports, <laughs> you know, to last me a lifetime, and I decided to uh, take a little bit of break. So I took a break, and for a year I willfully did nothing. I, I-, I just drove my daughter to carpool, and I took long walks, and I just tried to cleanse myself, try to figure out yeah. who I was outside of that that crazy 24-7 news cycle outside of the Huffington Post. And uh, after a year, I decided to uh, dip my toe back into the water of creativity and uh, wasn't sure what I was going to do, but I thought, maybe I'll start with some of these true stories that I've accumulated over my life and that I tell over dinner or that I, you know, through the years, over drinks uh, at a late night, you know, have a few and tell the funny stories. And... I started, and once I started doing that, they just poured out of me, you know. It was like this oh my. creative tsunami. Uh, and uh, so I ended up just writing every day for eight to ten hours a day. Luckily, I developed a lot of discipline over those years of being on deadline all the time. So even without a deadline, I, I just wrote like a madman trying to keep up with my fevered brain. And the result was, you know, it's black it self-control. True stories I waited until my parents died to tell. And it's not really a straight-up memoir. It's not like, you know, Bruce Springsteen's telling the story of his life, you know, how he went from freehold to superstar. Uh, these are just funny stories that um, uh, happened to me when I was a kid, when I was an adolescent, when I was a teenager, all the way through adulthood and working at the Huffington Post. So these, I just, I had two goals. You know, I wanted to be as funny as I possibly could, and I wanted to be as honest as I possibly could. And... Uh, You know, i I, I leave it to people to say what they think of whether I accomplished those goals. But so far, the early reviews seem to indicate that I did.
2: Well, and that's fantastic. And so you're telling stories throughout. So we kind of see how Roy became Roy and then how Roy was able to get this huge opportunity with the Huffington Post and all those stories. So I guess one of the questions I think everyone wants to ask is how did this Huffington Post start and how did you get involved in all this?
10: So the interesting thing is I had met Ariana, uh, Ariana Huffington, uh, sort of tangentially many years before. She was working on a project called uh, the Shadow Conventions, which were in 2000, these alternative conventions that were held um, to go along next to Shadow, basically, the Democratic and, Re- Democratic and Republican conventions. So that was uh, like an eight-week gig. And that eight-week gig turned into 17 years. And uh, I worked with her for five or six years before HuffPost uh, popped into people's heads, which happened after the 2004 election, when progressives across the country couldn't believe that John Kerry had lost to George Bush, particularly in the way that it happened. Yes, yes. You know, John Kerry, a war hero, painted as a coward, and George Bush, not a war hero, painted as sort of the great leader. And so progressives across the country scratched their head and said, how did this happen? And one of the things that people pointed to was this fantastic messaging machine that had grown up around um, conservative thought, whether it went from think tanks to Matt Drudge to the talk radio shows. And so they thought, we need something like that. And the answer came up, well, the internet seems to be a thing (laughs) <laughs> that is drawing a lot of attention. It, you know, it's amazing how fast this has all happened.
2: You know? Exactly. You know, looking back really fast. Yeah. years ago,
10: we launched, you know, what's
2: that? I said really fast it happened, Roy. Look at what our society is today. Well, the Internet's incredible. the biggest place. Yeah. When
10: you think, when you, when you look at it and you think when we launched, we launched May 9, 2005. There was no Facebook. There was no Twitter. No Instagram. You know, YouTube was only two months old. So all these things that we take for granted as part of our daily media diet didn't exist, and so uh, HuffPost sort of stepped into that void, and you know we had fantastic timing, and it was right when a lot of attention was turning to the internet, and we were smart about how we handled it, and became this sort of new media juggernaut, which I think really changed the way people consumed media and how they found their media, and. Uh, and it was an amazing ride,
2: a definite ma- amazing ride. And now look how large it is, Roy. And so you're really not involved at all anymore with with the Huffington Post. Or are you still? And you talked about taking that step back. No, to only,
4: only in spirit. Only
10: in spirit. You know, you leave you, you leave your creative DNA, and and, and and watch as it goes on, just like your children. And you look you look from a side with pride. You know, but neither Ariana nor I are, are, are at the Huffington
2: Post anymore. I didn't even know it. Ariana wasn't. Oh, my gosh. So you're telling me things. It's news. Here's the funny thing, Roy. I always use you when I cover my education shows for education talk because it became so controversial. Your education section in the Huffington Post is the best. The topics can just get conservatives and liberals going and just go after each other, which is so fantastic. And I I use a lot of your news to cover specific things on my radio show, my uh, education talk show. So I...
10: Yeah. We always wanted to create this place where ideas could be exchanged and, you know, people could, from both sides, could weigh in and, and people could get informed. That was really the main goal.
2: And that's what it is. It's great content. You guys hit the news the best. There's a spin sometimes, I'm going to be honest with you, but not all the time and everyone else quoted it. Just think about Rush Limbaugh, how much he has quoted your production. The Huffington Post and ripping on it, but it just was the best PR in the world, wasn't it? Because every conservative still goes and reads the Huffington Post together. Yeah,
10: that's the thing. And, And you know, Neil, and I get what you're saying about spin or point of view or attitude, but I think that was one of the defining things that made Huffington Post stand out so much was that we were not afraid to have an opinion. We were not afraid to have a point of view. We were not afraid to put attitude into our headlines. Um, you know, not with an agenda that we were gonna change people's minds or anything, but but, but to be, definitely have a point of view and be willing to to be funny, even though you were talking about serious things at times. And I don't mean funny like yeah. I hope my book no, is funny. It's, it's great it's, funny. It's a, a witty funny. Uh, ooh, yeah. That's smart funny, you know, headlines that make you go, "Wow." They're the best you know, headlines. That kind
2: of you, the, Roy, that news. they're the best headlines. Headline is such an important thing for people yeah. to click on. And before fake news, the Huffington Post oh was goodness. the best with the headline. You guys created that headline and say the wow factor, I'm going to click and read, and sometimes it would give us that, sometimes it wouldn't, but at least it was real news, not like the fake news on Facebook now, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> that you yeah, no, I I, I
10: I won't take all the credit, but I was very interested in the early days in helping establish the voice of the Huffington Post where you go, you could read a headline and even if you didn't see anything else and just saw the headline, you'd go, Oh, that's the Huffington Post. That's the way that they present things, you know? And th- that love of words and that love of wordplay is what I found so pleasurable when I was writing this book, Lack Self Control, is I got to just sort of go and follow my own path, but play with words, try to be funny, try to be witty, try to be surprising. And uh, so that was really my goal. I had two goals in writing this book. One was I wanted to be as funny as I possibly could be. And two, I wanted to be as honest as I could possibly be. because These are all true stories. And as I was writing them, Neil, I got to tell you, every now and then my wife would duck her head in and she'd say, <laughs> what are you writing about today? And I'd tell her and she'd go, Really? You're, you're gonna tell that story? Like they, they, they don't sense me yet. <laughs> you know, let me at least write it, and then we can decide not to publish it. Let me at least, you know, explore uh, the, the truth of it as much as I can, and then I can decide whether I want to put it out in the world or not. Because I've always been a guy who kind of lived out loud and was willing to talk about things that people sometimes weren't willing to talk about. It, it's funny because it turns out. That's kind of always been my personality. We recently had a high school reunion. I don't want to tell you the years, but it was 40. So it was our 40 year high school reunion, and I went back, and a lot of people knew that I'd worked on this book. Uh, and they were like, Roy, it's funny. You were always like that. You always said things that made the teachers kind of blush and laugh and go, Oh, Roy. And, and by the way, you know, that's the title of the book <laughs> Lack Self Control.
7: <laughs> that came from me finding a
10: trove of report cards from elementary school that my mother kept. And when I found them, I saw that every year, every grading period, the teachers would say, Roy needs to develop some self-control.
4: Roy (laughs) lacks
10: self-control. We wish Roy would." Sit down and
2: shut up. Roy, it sounds so like, it sounds like the book became, yeah. you
10: know, my, my, my way of looking at things. When I was younger, I would look at it and sort of feel embarrassed. Like, ooh, do I have a behavioral problem? Am I, am I a bad kid? And then as I got older, I realized, no, lack self-control doesn't mean, you know, you do whatever your impulse tells you. But for me, it means that you sort of don't have to draw within the lines. You know, you can go outside the line, you can think outside the box. You know, just just because everybody is marching to the right, doesn't mean that there's not some really interesting things over there on the left side, and I don't mean
2: that politically. Well, the funny thing is, Roy, I guess the great thing is, again, you are the dream writer that somebody would love to have been part of this whole Huffington Post movement. You are going to be in the history books forever when it comes to digital media and what you've done, and now you have a book that people can laugh about, understand your life, and learn more about who this guy was. And so where's the best place we can purchase it? I know all finer bookstores. Do you have a website as well, Roy, that we can find info and social media Yes, Yeah,
10: uh, you know we're pushing. We're making a big push uh, on Amazon, and it's available on Amazon both a, 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 as a as a digital book for Kindle, as a paperback, as a hardcover. The audio book is coming in the in the next week or so, uh, and I do have a website, and it's basically Roy Seacoff, R O Y.
2: S-E-K-O-F-F dot com. You're fabulous. I love the conversation. A great story about the Huffington Post. I know everyone needs to pick up the book because what you've done for the Huffington Post, I'm sure your book is really entertaining. You're an entertaining guy, and thanks for calling. I appreciate it.
10: I appreciate
2: it, man. Talk to you soon. All right, take care. All right, see you later. Bye-bye. You're listening to Neil Haley's show, and we'll be back in just a moment.
1: Plus